This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, as we've been discussing, a big hurdle cleared for a takeover that has been, to say the least, well-watched. T-Mobile and its acquisition of Sprint. Bloomberg Television caught up with Sprint Executive Chairman Marcelo Claure earlier. Here's what he had to say. This is going to be, I would call it, a very strong race to see who can provide the best 5G. We feel very confident that combined we're going to be able to do that. Because Sprint's uh, privileged spectrum 5G, 5G spectrum that we have, which is called the mid-band, combined with the low-band of T-Mobile, gives us the ability to build quite an advanced network. All right, let's get into this. Talk about uh, this deal uh, and finally or making a big step, I should say, taking a big step to finally getting done. Tara LaChapelle is with us, Deals Telecom and Media, a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, uh, along with Jennifer Reese, Senior Litigation Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, both of them in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tara, let's start with you, as Jason mentioned earlier. I mean, I feel like we have been talking about this uh, possible deal uh, for a long time, and we really have been. This is a big step, though, to finally getting it indeed done. It is. I mean, my first take is, wow, we're finally here. I can't believe this moment has come after Mm -hmm. about five years of these companies trying, going back and forth on how they could do some sort of merger and regulators consistently pushing back and scuttling their plans. So it's really interesting to see this happen and the significance of it. What's going to hold this process up from here is that there is a group of states, uh, state attorney generals that are suing to block the deal now. And it remains to be seen what's going to happen with that suit. So, Jennifer Reed, come on in here because that is an issue. You've got some grumpy state AGs uh, who are not so into this deal. How much power do they have? Oh, they have quite a bit of power because they have the same right under the same law to sue to block a merger as the Department of Justice does. And they actually have a pretty good cause of action here. So the key is going to be whether or not the judge views this remedy as sufficient to fix the harm that's been outlined in the state's complaint and now outlined in a complaint the Department of Justice made public today. And in if the judge believes that, the states are going to have a, a tough time winning. But, you know, there are plenty of industry analysts out there that say, hey, this isn't a great remedy. DISH isn't going to be a viable fourth competitor. And that's key. Is there some way, though, in the current iteration to kind of alter it a little bit that the states would then get on board from a legal perspective? Well, the states can absolutely try to negotiate their own settlements. They've done that in the past, and they can get additional concessions. And in fact, they have a little more flexibility than the Department of Justice in terms of what they're willing to accept. You know, that they can look for benefits for their own communities, build outs in rural Mm -hmm. parts of the state. They can even look for, you know, investment um, within the state. It's called leverage, right, right now? Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We want the deal done. Here's what we want. Well, Tara, what do you see? I mean, is there something that you have been in terms of talking to your sources and analysts uh, in the community uh, about this deal, like what they might need to do to get it done on the state's perspective? It's hard to say. I mean, I think that the states have a really good case to try to block the deal. The problem is this process has turned so political, and it's really hard once sort of the tone has shifted the way it has today where – some people kind of view this as, okay, it's a done deal now because the DOJ and the FCC have both come out in support of 
it. So when the news and the sort of the, the talk about it turns against you, it makes it really hard to kind of keep the focus on the issues with this deal when it's already seen as like a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there are, you know, antitrust issues in this that weren't resolved by this dish divestiture deal. And, you know, if they want to pursue something, it makes sense to for their consumers, especially in rural parts of the country. Well, and Tara, always interesting, and I know this is one element you've followed very closely, the personalities here are are fascinating. <laughs> I mean, both when it comes to, obviously, Jean Leger sort of being the, like, the preeminent uh, of all of the characters involved in this, but also within the Department of Justice, Macon Del Rahim, mm-hmm. who I know mm-hmm. uh, Carol spoke to out in L.A. Uh, earlier this year. I mean, there's a lot of jockeying of egos, to say the least. I feel like that's your milieu. Oh, yes. I mean, and Charlie Ergen in the mix. I mean, come on, you know, really unpredictable and past deal situations. We didn't know which way this was going to go, given that he became sort of the linchpin for it. And I think, you know, what's hard about this deal is uh, John Ledger is just a really likable guy. And he has, you know, he's turned T-Mobile into this brand powerhouse. And he's very vocal with customers and investors and consumers. And so it makes it really hard to criticize the deal. And I think that's why he was such a great pitch man for it but at the same time it, it kind of masks some of the issues because you kind of listen to what he says you believe what he says that is such a great point he has become such a great public face for this company and i do think about the consumer side and the consumer push where does that come in from a legal perspective you know consumer advocacy groups and so on and so forth what, what role might they play well they certainly have a role they, they'll have a role in the state case in that they can come in as a friend of the court it's called mm-hmm. amicus a friend of the court and they can express their opinion about this and i think there are already consumer groups that have the ear of some of these state attorney generals that are opposing it, particularly uh, groups that represent employers and workers that may be losing their job as a result of this deal. Now, that's not an antitrust issue, but again, the state AGs can go go sort of beyond the bounds of what we typically think of in terms of increased prices. So certainly consumer groups have a role to play here, um, and and John Ledger still has a lot to do with that big personality to get this across the finish line. What's the next step quickly, uh, Tara, in all of this? I think the next step is hearing from Dish on how the heck they're going to show the country that they are another wireless provider out there. How do they make their brand well known? I mean, Mm T-Mobile was able to disrupt the market because of how much they spent on marketing and branding. How does Dish do that? Yeah, good right. luck with that. Jennifer, from a legal perspective, what should we be watching? Just got about 15 seconds. Well, we have to watch for the trial start date. There's a, a dispute about that. It was supposed to be October 7th, but they're going to go before the judge August 1st to talk about whether that should be pushed back given this remedy. Ugh. All right. So great stuff. We know you'll be watching. <laughs> Hopefully you'll get some vacation between now. And then Tara LaChapelle, Deals Telecom and Media Columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and Jennifer Reese, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you both. So, yes. Yes. You too. Our friend, The Edge. I know. I know. Your friend, The Edge. Yeah. Are we best friends? I mean, Jason. that's not what I'm saying. But, you know, other people have said it. It's fine. There are pictures of us together. He's only said it a lot a lately. Lot. All right. So it doesn't take 140 characters to tell you how investors feel about Twitter earnings. The stock rallying as the company adds 5 million users and sales top analyst estimates, though, as Dave Wilson reminded us, it was daily active users, I yes, believe. not monthly. Uh, no. So here to talk about it, Scott Kessler, independent tech analyst, formerly with CFO. 
CFRA Research, follows the company. He joins us on the phone from New York City. So up 9.2%, Scott, in today's session. Twitter shares are up about 45%. Still not at their highs uh, that they have you know, were, you know, I don't know, a year ago, whenever it was. But anyway, is this move up today, this year, justified in shares of Twitter based on that latest report? Uh, well, thanks a lot, um, Carol and Jason. So first things first. So I remember when Twitter went public, and around that Christmas, it reached its all-time high of around $75. So we have uh, a ways to go. I think that was probably December of 2013, if memory serves. Um, you know, it was a really strong quarter from a growth perspective. Um, if you look at what you were referring to, which is this relatively new metric that Twitter is using to talk about user growth, it's actually monetizable daily active usage. That actually increased 14%. It's the best growth the company has delivered on that metric almost since uh, they started tracking it. But since uh, the past couple of years, that's been the highest growth that they've delivered um, revenues, accordingly, uh, showed 18% growth. If you adjust for uh, foreign exchange, which a lot of you know, companies and uh, the investing public tends to do, that, that was 20%. And it was really driven by um, the U.S. as well as advertising growth. I think the U.S. growth was 24%, and I think advertising growth was 21%. So growth was really strong, but sales and marketing up 28%. So obviously they were spending to generate that growth. And then the other thing I'd say is that uh, the guidance for Q3, at least in terms of looking at the revenue midpoint, it implied only 11 to 12% growth. So they're really suggesting there's going to be a lot of deceleration. People are talking about tough comps and seasonality, but that to me is not a great sign. And this is already a stock as you kind of implied, mm-hmm. uh, that's trading at a notable premium after uh, you know yeah. a banner 2019 thus far. So then are people just getting a little bit of a sugar high off of these recent earnings and they were looking for good news? And is this not ultimately a sustainable situation? Um, in short, yes. I think that's a fair way to characterize it. I think the results were good. Um, we'll see um, come... I guess when, you know, the company reports its Q3 results and I don't know, I'm guessing it's going to be probably around this time, uh, three months from now in October. Um, but I think it's fair to say that there's a big question as to whether or not um, Twitter's growth, particularly in terms of revenues, um, are going to be sustainable around this kind of, you know, high teens level. That's what people are looking for. People are looking for, you know, continuing monetization uh, of users. They indicated that they're benefiting from basically health initiatives, which basically means that, you know, people are actually going to the platform and liking what they're seeing and liking engaging. Um, And those people are being presented with more advertisements. And that's obviously the company generates revenues um, to a large extent. In addition, um, it's important to keep in mind that, they're doing more and more video, right? And so mm-hmm. that obviously commands higher price points, and that obviously is helps when it comes to the revenue growth. But, Jason, to your point, um, it's hard to see the stock with a lot more headroom, notwithstanding the all-time high I alluded to earlier, uh, just based on the fact that you know, we see the company saying revenue growth is going to decelerate markedly just quarter to quarter, and 
it's already trading at a premium multiple. I think the 2019 uh, consensus uh, PE is something like 40 times expectations. It's exactly um, what it is. Yep, 44. You know, so Scott, to me, thing- Carol, it yeah. just seems like a lot of the good news in the stock. Well, what about, though, um, you know, they are, like many other companies, betting on sales growth coming from expanding advertising overseas. Right now, uh, 52% of its revenue comes from the United States. What are the opportunities overseas for them, realistically? Just got about 30 seconds. Yeah. Look, I mean, that is something that, you know, I as an analyst covering this name for years has been uh, pointing to. Right. I mean, so you make a good point. More than half of revenue come from the U.S. Um, I think it's only about um, a fifth of the users are from the U.S. Correct. So if you kind of normalize that, there's a lot of upside, but that's a lot of heavy um, lifting. Yeah. And right. It's going to take time for the company to do that. And it costs money, too. And it costs money. That's a really, really good point and important one uh, here in Techland, especially. Scott Kessler. Independent technology analyst. We knew him from his days at CFRA Research. Really good to get your perspective today in New York City. And I just want to point out Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, produces TikTok, a global breaking news service for Twitter. Well, some have argued that upping the minimum wage will be more costly for employers and as a result, slow down economic growth. However, based on some recent experiences of doing just that, upping the minimum wage, well, that's not happened in terms of the economic impact. Here to explain, Matt Winkler is columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I say that's not happened because it hasn't necessarily slowed down the economy. Love this kind of story. I feel like it's so what we do really well at Bloomberg. So tell us about what you write about, Matt. So what we do is at Bloomberg <laughs> is look at the data. And the last time uh, the federal minimum wage went up was 10 years ago, 2009, to $7.25. Uh, earlier this month, Congress uh, voted to increase the minimum wage gradually to $15 an hour. Um, since that initial period 10 years ago, 29 states have raised the minimum wage on their own in various forms. 21 states have resisted doing anything of the kind. So what we wanted to see was, since there's a perpetual argument that says raising the minimum wage, having a minimum wage um, is a job killer, that's the essence of it, what happened? And so in those 29 states, when we looked at job creation, personal income growth, and consumer activity, uh, we were able to see very vividly that the 29 states dramatically outperformed, substantially outperformed economically, the 21 states that resisted doing anything with the minimum wage. So if nothing else, the data that we've compiled shows raising the minimum wage at this point is benign. Wow. And I mean, and you have some very powerful examples, not the least of which is California. This is on a massive scale, a very diverse economy. You know better than I. I mean, if California were its own country, it would be number five. Number five. I mean, that's amazing. Fifth largest economy in the world um, and arguably the most diverse economy in the United States. And one where retailing in particular restaurants, of course, hotels, big part of the California economy. And that little piece, the uh, if what you like, accommodation and food companies industry, uh, has been booming the past five years. And only Washington State, 
has a bigger uh, a bigger number uh, mm. with accommodation and and uh, restaurants and the like. So California is a really good example of uh, what people's worst fears just didn't come to pass. Not only did they not come to pass, California's yeah. gone from strength to strength. But so is Massachusetts, so is Colorado, so is New York, New Jersey, uh, which recently uh, increased the minimum wage, uh, has record low unemployment, uh, just like California. Something to be said, though, higher wages attracts workers and ultimately people who are making more money, who are spending more money, and that just cycles its way through the economy. Well, Lots of us would say pretty to think so, because mm-hmm. um, that's what we think should happen. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, because if you put more money in workers' pockets, uh, they have more money to spend. That, in fact, has been the case, um, because there's been no sign that anyone is not getting a job who wants a job in this economy, uh, just the opposite. In fact, the high minimum wage states like California, New York, and New Jersey, um, as I said, are uh, on record low unemployment uh, numbers. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of says that at least at $15 an hour, it's not an issue. Right. Maybe it's an issue at a higher you know, right. uh, amount, maybe at $30 an hour or $40 or something, but at 15, it just doesn't. And one of the things that we looked at, of course, is go back to 1968 and what's the purchasing power here? Um, and really $15 actually based on, you know, where, where we were inflation adjusted back to 1968 is not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of money to somebody who's making $7.25 to go to $15, and that's a big deal, and that's why this is a big issue, and that's why you know this all started right here in New York City in 2012. Right. The fight for $15 was with fast food workers uh, here in New York City, and you can appreciate why $15 yeah. means a lot to them. Yeah. And as you look ahead, is the political mood shifting at all on this? We're going into a presidential year where the left seems to be capturing a little bit more of the attention of the Democratic Party. You think about Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, et cetera. What's the political mood right so, now here? So unfortunately, it's still in Congress pretty much Democrat-Republican. Right. The Democrats, you know, all but six Democrats voted for this Uh and all the Republicans, I mean, there, there were a handful of Republicans who, who went along, but not many. Uh, so it's essentially a Republican-Democratic uh, argument. What um, I think is the takeaway here, what's meaningful, is that the data says this is benefiting capital and labor alike, that it's not a liberal conservative yeah. debate anymore. It shouldn't be a liberal conservative debate. It should be, is this good for capitalism? Yes, uh, the data says it is. So if it's good for capitalism, then, you know, if you're conservative, you should like it as much as the Democrats like it. Is it good for workers? Well, obviously, it's much better for workers than not. So maybe as we get into uh, the politics of the election, uh, there will be more of an argument that if you want to grow the economy, actually a higher minimum wage may be part of that equation. Right, because as you include in your story, kind of the flip side, you talk about seven of the ten slowest income growers are states with the lowest minimum wages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that speaks to another issue, which is, um, you know, these big states are very diverse. Yeah. Um, and diversity is an element of success. 
diversity is an element of growth. Uh, the states that have the most diverse populations uh, generally have the most diverse economies, and because they have the most diverse economies, they have more potential to grow than states that are much more limited. Right. So uh, a higher minimum wage attracting workers uh, from everywhere is a good thing in that context. Right. It's such an interesting analysis. And as you say, Matt, this is, as, as Charlie Pellet would say if he is here, this is Bloomberg. This is what we do. And it really is a, a great example of this. Always a treat to have you along with us. Matt Winkler, he is a columnist for Bloomberg Thank Opinion, you, also the editor-in-chief emeritus, the man who started it all here at Bloomberg News back in the day. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. This story is so important and the subject is so essentially (laughs) bad uh, that it takes a village to put it together and to talk to us about it. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here in our studio. Polly Mazins, she is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Josh Dean, freelance writer, he's on the phone. Josh, I want to start. I, I don't know where to of, start. It's not that big of a village, just for the record. <laughs> it's a pretty big just village a for people, us. A couple people. Just a few people. All Set really this up reporters. for us, Joel. So we uh, we started talking uh, recently about uh, the Knicks. And if you know anything about the NBA, uh, the Knicks are really, really bad. And when we actually looked at the data, we realized that um, they're – the worst team of the century this century so far just uh and and they're getting worse and this season there was a lot of hope that it was going to change because they were going to finish last that gives them really good odds at the, in the draft that didn't go well they didn't even get the top pick in the draft and then they were supposed to land these free agents and they didn't land those free agents and it is it was like the encapsulation of everything that was wrong with the New York Knicks and all of while that was happening, we were like, you know, there's a fixture in all of this. And we talked to Josh Dean, who we work with a lot. And Josh was like, yeah, I'll do a story about James Dolan, who owns MSG and the Knicks and the Rangers. What did you find, Josh? Uh, well, I mean, if you're looking for a constant, the Knicks have been, the, like Joel said, the worst team of the century since the year 2000. Uh, literally the worst team in the NBA, despite being the most valuable franchise and playing in the most valuable and most famous arena in basketball. Four billion dollar franchise. Let's just put the number out there because I think that's pretty impressive. Well, at least four and an analyst told me he thinks they probably will get significantly more, Hmm. maybe five. Dolan has hinted that they've heard offers of five. So in a city with all the media glare, every athlete wants to be here and yet the Knicks are terrible year after year. And when Joel and I started talking about this story, there was a lot of, like he said, hope. It was that this is going to be the year they turn it around. They were terrible on purpose because they tanked to get the first draft pick and all these free agents, and then none of that happened. And it seems to be that the, a big reason is, is the ownership, that Jim Dolan has created a culture that players don't want to be a part of and that people don't tend to stick around long. And um, I think he needs to look in the mirror. So, Polly, 
I think it's time for you to tell yeah. the story <laughs> We've uh, all been because waiting. it just <laughs> captures it all. It, we, uh, this is all a lead up really to this to be anecdote. Honest, before I read the story, I'm like, "What? Well, we need two reporters and Josh uh, and Joel, right?" And, and they're like, "Oh no, yes, we do need all these people." And Polly has to tell her story. Yes. So I was sent to see uh, Jim Dolan play with his band in Huntington, Long Island, and I was thinking, I'm just gonna, you know, see a band player, write up a graph, and go home and go to bed at a reasonable hour. I was very wrong. <laughs> what actually happened is I showed up. I was just going to try to see him on stage, see what his merch looked like. If I saw him, try to ask him a few questions. I was eating a taco at the bar, and he comes up right next to me, drinking a mug of tea out of his merch. It was a cute mug. And um, I asked him a few questions. I identified myself as a reporter, specifically as a Bloomberg reporter, and it did not go well from there. He was very frustrated that I was there, which is not surprising. He's really media adverse. Um, everything that went down with the Daily News recently really Really shows that. So he was not pleased I was there. He said that I had not been authorized to be there. It was a public venue. I bought a ticket per Business Week's direction and that I needed to go. He said his music was not part of him. I tried to reason that, you know, if somebody who controls MSG is in a band, it's part of you. And um, he had me removed from the premises. Uh, he had a few security guards come up to me. They politely asked me to leave. And, you know, I tried to reason that I bought a ticket like anybody else. They offered me cash for my ticket. I declined. And they walked me out across the property line. I could not leave by myself. Wow. And it is among the stranger things that's ever so happened to me in, on a reporting trip. In the lore of Dolan stories, Josh, where do you rank that? Well, I mean, it's just so absurd because he, he doesn't talk to the press, but he's literally famous for throwing people out of things and right. encounters with fans that he should avoid because he knows that they get him in trouble. A, a famous and one being I, a fan who recently sell, said, sell the team at a Knicks game and is now banned for life from MSG. It has happened repeatedly. And then it's like, so he decides not to cooperate with our story. And then what happens when a reporter affiliated with the story shows up, he kicks her out of his event. I mean, it's weird. Polly, Polly and I have talked about this many times now. It's like, all he had to do was say, no comment. I'm, I'm not talking to you and walk away. But, and like, enjoy the show. Away. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely what yeah. I anticipated. I think I thought I might get three or four lines in the story, not a whole right. second. Story. Yeah, exactly. You're, you have become part of the story. <laughs> Another great submarine. Can I just say, there's just so much in here. An about important the part here, though, is you know, it's not news that the Knicks aren't good. Yeah, right. That's not, I think, what the the nuance of the story is. And what Josh really talks about here is that even though the Knicks are bad and keep getting worse, MSG keeps getting more valuable. Yeah. And that's because they've owned the event business, and live events are where the money's at. So despite all the turmoil for the Knicks, the business is a really strong yeah. business and appears to only be getting stronger. Well, this is among our most read on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's also on newsstands, on the Bloomberg, as I mentioned, and at Bloomberg.com. Joel Weber, thank you so much. Polly Malsense, thank you so much. And Josh Dean, do check out this story. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the quick.
questions that drive us. Is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us in our studio, Doug Sioka, CEO and partner at Kavar. Did I do it right? <laughs> I always check. Kavar Capital Partners, approximately $700 million in yes. assets under management, uh, typically based at Leewood, Kansas. But uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, as you said, this is your first time to our studio. In the new studio, the yes. New it's studio, beautiful. Right? Absolutely. Very well appointed. Pretty cool place. Yeah, yeah we like we like to be good hosts. You know, we like to have a nice environment to uh, stimulate good conversation. So, one of the things we love about talking to you is because you're not in this mess every love day us. that we're in. You're talking to actual people <laughs> and not just you know blowhards like us. So, what are you hearing for, from your clients, from your customers, from your colleagues uh, out there in Kansas about the state of the markets? Yeah, I think that it res- it's resonating very clearly that there's concern about the, the extent of the cycle and when is the next turn and how severe is the next turn going to be. I feel like the average investor, not necessarily like of our capital client or even a Midwestern investor, I think the average investor right now is, is probably distorting facts and underlying messages of the market with noise, background noise, I don't actually believe is as tangible or as destabilizing as sort of the paranoia that that at this point I think is pretty well represented. Well, what do you make though? I mean, here we are with the S&P 500 up 21%. I'm looking at a a PE of about almost 20. I mean, does this make sense? Historically, that's a high valuation. It's a high valuation, Caroline. I think one of the things that keeps that valuation at a concerning level is the E right now is leveling off and, and likely this quarter, particularly to go down. I think we've had about 44, 45% of the companies report this quarter. Mm-hmm. We're looking actually, interestingly and positively, at revenue gains for the quarter of about 4%, but it could be as much as a 2.5% decline in profitability. And that's backward looking, right? I do think that we pulled forward a lot of optimism in the 2018 tax cuts. So, so much fell to the bottom line. Right. What a positive revenue and a negative earnings number tell you is that bottom line is being obstructed a little bit more now than it was in the past. But if you look at where we are in the market, we're kind of sitting right on top of a, of a trailing 12-month multiple. But if you look through at some of the sectors, not all have really participated. And there are yeah. certain sectors that still could stand a chance of expanding their multiple to take the market a little bit further. Right. So talk to us so, about so that. So that's supportive of the market moving up more. I think so. I mean, if you think about right, macro environments and beta trades are really, really important as sort of the peak points of volatility. Right, The 2018 fourth quarter, complete washout, indiscriminate selling, high vol. First part of this year, January to January through April, market just ripped higher. I mean, you used to say, right, the market would go up like an escalator and down like an elevator. This was absolutely more like a bungee cord, right? Mm-hmm. The market went way down, way up very quickly. Thank you very much, Fed. So that, yes, thank you, Fed. Exactly right. So when you strip out some of the confusion in the market and understand the substantive element of the market that actually sets not only consumer confidence, but expectations for forward prices, it all is predicated on the level of interest rates. So right now, using the level of interest rates, which is a positive tailwind, and overlaying that with some of the sectors that have yet to really participate that could still stand to see a multiple expansion, there are several, right? Whether it's healthcare, financials, even um, communication services, technologies, trades a little bit below its historical multiple, forward-looking multiple. And then um, 
um, what's the last one I'm trying to say? Communication. So I said right. communication services. Yeah. I don't know. So I can't get in your five. brain. <laughs> there, are five, there are five sectors right now that we think could play well for a little while. And what's consistent uh, about them or, or what is the most interesting, maybe is a better question, of those for you? What what bodes the best? We think healthcare. We think healthcare mm-hmm. stocks and technology stocks. When you look at something like at Alphabet slash Google and our earnings that they reported last night, and then overlay that with Amazon, right? Yeah. Maybe a tale of two tech companies. Amazon is going to be down a little less than, and, and Google's up considerably a lot today. But technology stocks at this point in the cycle, people are going to try to maximize the productivity that they can sap out of wherever they are and whatever al- capital they're allocating, particularly because they're allocating at low, very low prices. But healthcare to us, because it is such a political punching bag, mm-hmm. is very, very important, hmm. right? There's an old expression, and this goes back to world wars and likes which hopefully we'll never have to, to consider again, where you would buy on the cannons and sell on the trumpets. Well, right now we're in this political grandstanded, grandiose statements that everyone's going to take every shot they can across both sides of the aisle at healthcare, right? But if you think about historically economic self-preservation and, and progression, always, always trumps political motivation right. in the in the long term. Now, let's not confuse political motivation with. Um, Department of Justice investigation, right? right? There are certainly companies in the healthcare space that probably should very well be avoided. But we really think that because of the noise, it's clouding out some of the benefits of this profit cycle and the underlying strength of the demographic. And, and you do sense. consistently see in polls, in surveys of voters that as much as all of us talk about trade, as much as we talk about geopolitics, healthcare is routinely the number one concern for voters. And that's ultimately right. what may send them right. to the polls and, and figure which way they pull the lever. And fundamentally, right? I mean, we all will just be using more and more healthcare going forward. I mean, I'm looking at the S&P 500. Healthcare is up this year, a little bit more than 6%, but it's your worst performing major industry group. Yeah, that's in lagging the S&P, yeah. S&P right. dramatically. Right, yeah. and it's because it's been such a political punch bag. No question. I mean, you think about some of the sectors that have performed, performed the best and are at valuation premiums or historical multiples. Consumer staples, utilities, and REITs. Right. Right. So this has been that yield grab that's taking place. I listened to an interview with Kyle Bass yesterday. He said this world is perverse because people are buying bonds for appreciation and stocks for yield. Yeah. So you're looking at people continuing to bid up the prices of some of these very boring businesses that if you want want to measure a company's excitement to its valuation, look at its peg ratio. Mm -hmm. So all five of those sectors that I mentioned before, not only are they undervalued compared to their historical multiple where it can be supported by the market, but they're undervaluing the growth rate of those earnings. Right. But you look at utilities, REITs, in, in consumer staples, and they're trading at massive levels above what you ever expect those. Are Is that where grow. you've been putting new money? We've been avoiding those sectors. Uh, right? avoiding. Yeah, but new money into healthcare? New money into healthcare, new money into financials, new money into, into consumer services, and, and also into IT. Thank right. you, thank you. What a treat to have you in New York City. Enjoy it. You're off on a cruise. Enjoy it. Um, get some good time off. You deserve it. Doug Sioka is CEO, partner, Kavar Capital Partners, joins us from Kansas here in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.